good morning. As we continue to focus our hearts on a very difficult week in Jesus' life, we are reminded once again of how unexpected the beginning of that week actually is. If, if you can imagine with me what it must have been like on that day as the sun ignites the western sky, as it begins to rise over the horizon, and we see him. It's Jesus. He's riding a donkey and her colt into the city of Jerusalem. He's coming there because he and his followers are getting ready to celebrate Passover, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And while their plans might have been for them to slip quietly into the, the city limits, there are other people who have found out about his arrival, and they're really not interested in letting Jesus sneak in unnoticed. And so they, they begin to line a dusty street. They get ready for this spontaneous, unorganized, chaotic parade. Some of them take off their outer cloaks and they, they place them on the surface of that dusty street. Others of them take branches off of nearby trees and they line them, them down on that same dusty street. These are all different ways for them to try to communicate to Jesus through actions just how much he means to them. And, and not just how much he means to them, but what they're hoping he can do for them. These are, are the kinds of actions that people in the ancient world would reserve for royalty. They're tokens of love and devotion to a king. And suddenly we hear somebody start to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as that chant begins to pick up throughout the rest of the crowd, those countless voices begin to sound like one strong voice of faith and trust and devotion. And as we imagine what it might have been like to be there, I want you to try to be there in your heart, in, in your imagination. Be there, stand there in that dusty street on that morning be a part of that crowd as we, as followers, together join them and we raise our voices with theirs to say, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This hope that Jesus isn't just this carpenter from Nazareth, but he's something more, that he is our king. But not everybody sees Jesus as a king. As soon as this parade begins to break up and Jesus actually gets into the city of Jerusalem, he wastes no time in going straight to the, the, the center of their faith and their hope as the people of Israel. He goes straight to the temple. And as he gets there, he is overwhelmed. He's overcome with a sense of anger and frustration to see that this sacred place has become nothing more than a marketplace. And he, he begins to shout and yell. Matthew tells us that he, he actually begins to, to overturn tables and kick benches over. He's, he's just 
so enraged at what is going on because there's all these people doing business inside the temple. And it's not just that they're, they're doing business, it's that they've found a way to, to exploit, to take advantage of people who, who are there to make sacrifice, who, who need to do something they feel to make themselves right with God. And, and you've got these, these merchants there that are trying to take advantage of, of people that, that Jesus can't, he just can't let that happen. And so he starts to yell and shout and overturn tables. And, and as we watch, people react in, in shock and surprise. We watch these merchants, these businessmen in anger react to Jesus' anger. And we find that, that, again, not everybody is really ready to accept Jesus to be some sort of religious leader or king because they're used to religious leaders that, that support the status quo, that, that help them somehow get ahead and, and take advantage of the situation. And Jesus says, no, this, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is supposed to be a place where everybody draws near to God and you've turned it into a, a house of exploitation. You've turned it into nothing more than a den of robbers. And as the businessmen scurry away, angry, we hear them muttering under their breath, who, who, who does this guy think he is? Who, who does he think he is to try to force us out of a place that's rightfully ours? We, we've got to make a living. We've, we've got to do whatever it is to get ahead. Why, why would he get in, in the way of us? And, and then we start to see as they leave the temple courts, we see other people start to come out of the shadows People we hadn't noticed before because of all the, the booths and the tables and all the business that was going on. And we find the people who, who want to be inside the temple, the people who, who want to draw close to God, but who are, are stuck in those outer temple courts because they're damaged. Because there's something wrong with them. Because they're broken. Because they're hopeless and they're handicapped. And they don't think that, they, that they're worthy that they're valuable enough to, to be a part of the, the worshiping community of faith. And so they've, they've stayed on the outskirts. And now that Jesus has cleared a space for them, they start to come out of those shadows. We notice one man in particular, perhaps, a, a blind man who's trying to make his way across the uneven bricks beneath him. He's swinging his cane back and forth, trying to make sure that he doesn't stumble. But as he's getting closer to Jesus, and he can tell that he's getting closer to Jesus because he can hear Jesus' breathing, he, he starts to get so excited, he's overwhelmed with, with emotion and anticipation. He starts to stumble, and someone else in the crowd reaches out and and steadies him, and finally he reaches Jesus. And the reason he's so excited is he's, he's headed to the one place that he knows he can find lasting healing, a healing not just of his, his eyes, but of his soul, of his, of his hope. And when he reaches Jesus, we watch as this blind man's faith becomes sight. And as he looks around at all of us in the crowd, tears begin to to fill his brand new eyes. And we watch as those tears trace his face and fall to the ground of the dusty temple. And then we start to notice he's far from the only broken, hurting person that's surrounding us at this point. It's, it's just a sea of faces. All of them. People the world has forgotten. People that maybe the religious establishment of Jesus' day has also found a way to forget. And yet here they are, 
Jesus doesn't forget them. Jesus doesn't reject them. He welcomes them. He accepts them, and he brings them the kind of healing they're desperate for. And suddenly we hear somebody in the crowd take up this this cry that we've heard earlier in the day, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And this time Matthew points out to us, it's not just that we hear the crowd crying out Hosanna, but we notice that among the voices of the men and the women who are are crying out this praise and, and pledging their allegiance to Jesus as their king, we notice other voices, voices of little boys and young girls. We hear the voices of children. We, we hear the faith of children who believe that Jesus is their king because they know how much he loves them. This keeps happen, happening, this, this cycle of people who, who receive Jesus in wonder, who, who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is their only true hope of, of finding welcome and rest in God's presence and in their community. And then we also have people who, like the merchants in the temple, like the doubters on the edges of the crowd early in the morning, who, it's not just their... They're not quite sure about Jesus, but they're, they're sure of one thing, and that is that he's disrupting everything. He's turning things upside down, and, and that's the last thing that they want to see happen because they've, they've figured out how to benefit from how things are and all of its brokenness and society's brokenness and the ways that people have been neglected and, and walked over. They, they know it's not perfect. They know it's not even the way it should be, but they've figured out how to navigate it. They've, they've figured out how to play the game. By the world's rules, and Jesus is threatening all that, and so they're threatened by Jesus. And so we have this cycle of Jesus encountering people who would give anything to be a part of his life, and people who would do anything to take his life away from him. It's a stressful roller coaster week of not quite knowing who's going to win. The people who love Jesus and need Jesus, and know how much they need Jesus. And then on the other side, these people who would do anything to get in his way and stop him. Who's going to win? A couple of days pass, and Jesus is invited to to have a meal at a house of a man named Simon. We're invited as well, and so we gather around this this low table where everybody's reclining in this large house of this, this important man. And suddenly, in the, in the middle of the meal, Matthew tells us that this unnamed woman interrupts. Somebody who, who's uninvited, she, she crashes the dinner party. And we're wondering when she first comes into the room, because she's filled with anxiety, we're, we're wondering, is, is she somebody who loves Jesus or who hates him? Is she somebody who wants to be near Christ, or is she one of those people who, who's going to attack him? And as she moves quickly towards him, it's not easy to tell which part of the crowd she belongs to. But then when she finally reaches Christ, we see that she's got this, this priceless alabaster jar of expensive perfume. And as soon as she gets there, she breaks it open, and she lifts it up over her head, and she pours it over Jesus' head, all over Jesus, the the sweet-smelling, expensive perfume, all of it. I mean, when she's done anointing Christ, the anointed one, there isn't a drop left. And so we know which part of the crowd she belongs to. 
She's somebody who needs Jesus to be not only her king, but the king. She needs Christ to not only be somebody she's anointed, but she needs Christ to be the one who is the anointed of God. She needs him to turn everything upside down. And she believes that he can. And so she tries to find a way to express her, her love to, to him, her devotion to him. And it's an extravagant act of love. It's reckless generosity. And, and everybody in the room who's watching it knows it. They know how expensive that perfume had to be. And, and we can tell by looking at her that it's probably the most precious thing she's ever going to have in her hands, in her life. And she's just given away all of it to Jesus. And as amazing as that is, we, we notice that there's people in the room who don't find it to be amazing. They, they find it to be off-putting. They find it to be personally intimidating because they have no interest in showing that kind of love and devotion to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's, that's not something they're interested in doing. And, and somebody huffs loudly and says, what a waste. I mean, all of that could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Why, why didn't she stop and think about that? And immediately the, the room is filled with judgment. Because as soon as somebody says it out loud, as soon as, says, as, soon as somebody else says, look, I, I don't want to have to be that devoted to Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. There's, there's got to be a better way, a more strategic way to, to communicate our acceptance of Jesus and what he's trying to do. There's, there's got to be a more moderate way for us to be a part of, of what it is that Jesus is trying to bring about. Everybody in the room is drawn to that, that excuse. There's other people to help. And Jesus doesn't allow that judgmental silence to last long. He says, yes, there are other people to help. There will always be people that the church needs to help. You're always going to have people gathered around you who need support. People who are poor and more in more ways than you can imagine, but you're not always going to have me. And what this woman has done to me in this moment, it's extravagant, it's reckless generosity, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and you can't see it because you can't imagine treating me this way. You, you can't imagine regarding me this way, but she can. She's, she's not just pulling some stunt. She's, she's not just showing off. She's not just proving some point. You don't see what she's actually doing, do you? She's anointing me for my burial. And what she's done for me, whenever the gospel's preached throughout the world, they're going to tell her story. And suddenly the room is silent again, and this time it's, it's not a silence that's filled with judgment. It's a, a silence that's filled with acknowledgement. That if we couldn't see that what this woman has done to Jesus is beautiful, we, we can't see the truth. And, and the one word that really stands out in what Christ says in this, this rebuke is when he talks about her anointing him for his burial. I mean, just a handful of days earlier, he comes into Jerusalem for the Passover, for this Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and there's this crowd of people who are devoted to him. And yet he obviously believes that his death is close. And we look around at, at the other followers that are in the room with us to see 
how they respond to Jesus mentioning his own death. And, and we can see that they've heard him talk like this before. And they don't like it. It makes them uncomfortable. It makes them confused and frustrated because they know what Jesus is capable of. You and I, we know what Jesus is capable of. We, we know not only can he heal people and, and cast out demons, he can raise them from the dead. He can overcome the power of death itself. And here he is talking about his own death, and it just doesn't make sense. If you didn't have to die, why would you ever choose to die? And if we're going to follow Jesus, if, if his way of life is going to be the shape of our way of life, then it makes us uncomfortable to have to, to think about that way of life, including a death that we choose for the sake of other people. And so, for all kinds of different reasons, the disciples have heard Jesus talk this way, but they don't want to think about it. They don't want to understand it. And yet we can tell that they believe it. They believe it's close, that, that while Jesus might have come into the city as a king, he's not going to leave it with his life. And so what she does is beautiful, but it's also heartbreaking. Because maybe she's the only one who really knows what time it is in Jesus' life. Who really understands that we're right in the middle of the last week of his ministry. The last week of, of face-to-face conversations with his disciples where they, they get to feel like they, they've grown closer to him and they know him and they're relaxed in his presence because when you start to try to interact with somebody after their death, everything changes. There's something in this, this last week that Jesus knows they're about to lose, that, that Jesus knows we're about to lose, and he wants them to know it. He wants them to wake up to, to what time it is in his, his life and his ministry, and not just his life and his ministry, but, but what time it is in the life of the world, what time it is in the life of his people. They don't see it because they don't want to see it, and Jesus says, look, you may want to run from this truth, and, and you may not want it to be a truth that's a part of your life, but my death is coming. In fact, it's almost here. And so, they gather together. We gather with them again for one last meal with Christ. They've come to the place in the week where they're really going to celebrate the Passover, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're they're going to remind one another as, as strongly as they know how of The fact that they are a people who believe in a God who can do anything. The God of the Exodus. The God who can help you walk through dry land in the middle of of a sea. The God who can make promises and always, always keep them. And their hearts are gathered around that, that story from their past that they want to be a story in their present. And they desperately want to be a story in their future. And yet there's a sorrow, there's a sadness as they gather. Because this is it. This is the last supper that they're going to have together with Jesus in this way. There's a heaviness. Nobody wants the week to end like this. Nobody wants this to be the Last Supper, but it seems that Jesus is choosing for things to go this way, that 
that Jesus believes that this is exactly, this is precisely the way the story has to go. Open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be reading together starting in verse 20. That evening he took his place at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, I assure you that one of you will betray me. Deeply saddened, each one of them said to him, I'm, I'm not the one. Am I, Lord? It's not me. It can't be me. And he replied, The one who will betray me is the one who dips his hand with me into this bowl. The Son of Man goes to his death, just as it is written about him. But how terrible it is for that person who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Now Judas, who would betray him, replied, just like the others, it's not me, is it, Rabbi? And Jesus answered, you're the one who said it. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. He took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many so that their sins may be forgiven. I tell you, I won't drink wine again until that day when I drink it in a new way with you in my Father's kingdom. And then, after singing songs of praise, they went to the Mount of Olives. If you'll be serving communion to us this morning, if you would, please go to the back of the room and prepare to serve us. When Jesus looks up from the table with this piercing glance and a voice that I imagine was barely above a harsh whisper. And he says, there's no way around this. I, I assure you, I promise you, somebody at this table is going to betray me. One of my closest friends, one of, one of my faithful followers who have been with me through all kinds of ups and downs, all of you who've, who've been with me through this week where we came together into this city with a parade of all these adoring people and, and all these songs of Hosanna and, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is it. This is where it all comes to an end. And it's, it's going to happen because one of you at this table, one of us at this table is, is going to betray Jesus. And I would imagine if we had been there, and as we are there in our hearts and minds this morning, in our imaginations, there's a part of us that would have been really angry at Jesus saying that at this final meal. That, that it feels like, look, there's all kinds of reasons that it's come to this. Why would you, why would you blame us? We've, we've tried to be with you. We've tried to trust you. We've, we've been the ones who lift you up as our leader and, and our king. Why would you say that it's going to come to this because of one of us at this table? There's a part of us that would be offended and frustrated that this is what he chooses to talk about in this last meal that's supposed to be a special evening. Yet, there would have to have been another part of us that would have been scared. I mean, there's a reason everybody around the table says, it's not me, is it? 
I mean, on one hand, I think they're, they're trying to deny that it's going to be them. But I think in another way, they're actually honestly asking Jesus, it's not going to be me, is it? Because they've all, we've all got doubts and questions about Christ. And, and more than that, we've got doubts and questions and struggles with figuring out how much the, the shape of Jesus' life is going to shape our lives. That, that this part of the story, this, this evening, this meal, that, that we'd all like to, to find a way around. That this conversation that we just wish we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to have, it's, it's here and it's unavoidable and we've got to wrestle with it. And so we have to, we have to be honest. It, it wouldn't be me, would it? Because there's a part of us that's scared that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And that he's seen us. Not only in our best moments, but also in our worst moments. That he knows our brokenness. That he knows that in one way or another, we're all outcasts. That we're all afraid that we don't belong, that we aren't welcome here. There's a part of us that's afraid that He's been with us this past week, and he has seen the way our decisions and our behaviors deny, betray his presence in our lives. That he's listened to us as we have talked to other people. He's heard words of of anger and selfishness and greed, words that inflict harm on other people, that, that he's overheard those conversations, and that those two our actions, that, that they're things we, we're not just thinking or saying, but those words become weapons. They're, they're not just something we say. They're something that we do to other people that, that betray Jesus' presence in our lives. That, that if we're honest, that, that you and I have said things in our lives that, that make us unfit to speak Jesus' holy name ever again. And so, like Judas, like any other disciple that's gathered around the table, we ask, it's not me, is it? I, I know I've, I've had weak moments in the past, Jesus. I know that I've made mistakes in the past. I know that I have betrayed you before. You're not telling me that I'm going to betray you again. You're not telling me that it's going to be my fault that you, you make this choice, that you have to go to this place that you have to hurt and suffer because of me. I think we have to wrestle, brothers and sisters, with the reality that Jesus is never just talking about one of us. He's talking about every single one of us. He's talking about you and me. And then he reaches out and he he takes the bread in his hands and he prays for it, and then he tears it open. He, he breaks it apart, and he says, take and eat, this is my body. And it's obvious, right? We know that, that what he's done to the bread is what our sin, our mistakes, our betrayal, what all of that is going to do to him. His body is that bread. It's going to be broken and torn apart for us. And nobody's forcing Jesus to do this. Nobody's making Jesus do this. He's wrestling with the decision, but it will be his decision. 
Not even God is going to force Jesus to choose to die because you and I haven't managed to die to all the things in our lives that we desperately need to die to. He's going to choose this death so that we can find a way to new life, and we, we know it. And yet it's hard to acknowledge that this broken and torn bread that we eat is something we desperately need. Because on our own, we cannot find a way to that place of mercy and grace. We can't. Jesus invites us there. And the cost of inviting us there is everything. Let's pray. God, as we take this bread, and as we tear it apart ourselves, and as we place that broken piece of bread into our mouths, we know that it represents the brokenness that Jesus was willing to endure so that we might find healing, so that we can be mended together. And not just the broken places in our individual lives, but that, that somehow Jesus choosing to be broken for us, for all of us, mends our broken relationships, mends even our broken world if we'll let it. And so we pray, God, that you would open our hearts to that brokenness, And that through it we might find the grace and the mercy that can only come to us through the sacrifice of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Then Jesus takes the cup. He prays for it. And he says, drink from this all of you. This this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many so that they might find forgiveness for their sins. And we know again that it's our sin, our, our mistakes, our betrayal that Jesus is giving his life for, his, his blood for. And, and he talks about forgiveness of sins. And, and we know that he's, he's not just talking about Jesus being somebody who, who loves us enough to, to say it's okay, but, but that this is a kind of forgiveness that not only saves us, it, it transforms us if we'll let it. That it, it meets us where we are in our brokenness. But it, it's never a forgiveness that leaves us in our brokenness. That it both cleanses us and changes us. And in order for that to happen, it's not just Jesus who has a decision to make. You and I have a decision to make. Do we really want not only to be set free from the consequences of our sin, but do we want to partner with Jesus in living lives that are free from sin? Let's pray. God, as we continue in this meal where Jesus is giving everything so that we might have the kinds of of lives that you want us to experience, God, we, we pray that as we drink this cup, as we take into our bodies the symbol of Jesus' lifeblood, that it, would, that it would change us, not just from people who don't have any regrets or, or anything in our past that we don't have to, to figure out or, or fix, but God, we want this to be something that transforms our present and our future. We want to be people who aren't just washed clean, but are transformed. So God, help us to be open to that change, to be, to be open to that transformation. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As we continue to 
to be sitting around this table with Jesus in this, this final meal, this last supper, our hearts are filled with a sense of, of needing to respond somehow, some way, to say something, to do something. I mean, here Jesus is talking about giving everything for our sake, giving his very life so that we can find new life. And, and how do you respond to that? What, what do you say? What, what kind of, of action can we take that would communicate just how thankful we are for who Jesus is and what he's doing in, in our lives? And immediately, our, our hearts go back to that, that woman who comes uninvited into that, that dinner party and in and, and just seconds pours out this extravagant gift to anoint Jesus. It is the only actual anointing Jesus will ever receive in his earthly life. And it comes at the hands of a woman who's being recklessly generous because she knows something that makes everybody else uncomfortable. She knows the only appropriate response to, to self-giving love, to self-sacrifice, is sacrifice. That the only way to show just how grateful we are is to give everything we can possibly give, to be recklessly generous in the same way that Jesus is showing us in his own life, in his own death. We come to this part of our service, and I think most of us are more tempted to respond like that person at the dinner party who scoffs and says, there's got to be a different way for us to get the work done that we need to get done. There's, there's got to be a less sacrificial response that, that we're supposed to have, and yet the image of this woman's not going anywhere, and Jesus' words that what she does is beautiful, that it's not careless, that he actually believes what she does is full of care. That she gets it, that she understands, and that it's beautiful. At this table, we have a chance, like her, to give, not just in part, but to give everything the way that Jesus gives everything. Because we're not just at this table to be impressed by Jesus or to be instructed by Jesus. We're here because we want to be like Jesus. Even when it's difficult, maybe especially when it's difficult, when it's going to cost us everything we have. And yet we remember Jesus saying that if we want to find true life, we have to give everything. We have to give our life. And trusting that it's in giving our life that we suddenly find ourselves receiving everything that truly matters. This moment in our worship service is not housekeeping. It's not logistics. It's not just something that we, we might want to think about doing. It's how we become like Jesus. It's not the only way, but it is a vital way. It is an important way. It is an unavoidable way for us to say, I want the shape of Jesus' life and death to become my way of life. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your son giving everything for us. And we admit that we struggle. We, we struggle with half measures and half-heartedness and, and half-seriousness when it comes to really being your people, your, your followers. And so we ask that as we participate in this moment around the table of not just receiving but also sharing, we ask that you would use it powerfully in our lives.
to make us more like your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It's a week that had to feel like a collection of years. It starts out with something exciting and amazing, but it ends here and it ends now. And, and there's so many things in the last week of Jesus' life that are, are confusing and hard to understand. There, there are things that are disappointing and hard to accept. And yet this is the way of life and death that Jesus chooses. And we are left with this image, an uncomfortable image, an image of a life cut short. And everything inside of us wants to rush past it. We want to get beyond it. We want to get to the part of the story that we want to believe is coming. Focusing on sorrow and pain and death has never been something that comes easy for anyone, and yet it is something that we have to confess is an everyday part of our lives. That things are confusing and hard to understand, and things are disappointing and hard to accept. And here we are, waiting. And you and I are going to choose to wait. We're going to wait the way Jesus' disciples had to wait. We're going to wait from now until next Sunday. We're not going to rush past this image of where self-giving love leads our friend and our Savior, our Redeemer, our King. We're not going to rush past it. We're going to wait. But as we wait in this next week, we hold this truth in our hearts that Jesus did things and he said things that make it clear to us that this can't possibly be the end. That death can't possibly have the final word. And so beyond all odds, in this coming week, we choose, as we do in every week, to be people of hope. Hope for a new day, hope for a new life, hope even for a new world. We are people of hope. As we sing this next song, if you've come this week and you need to pray with someone, if if you need to talk with someone, if you would like to talk with someone about what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus, if you'd like to know more about this family of faith, we're going to have some shepherds and their wives just outside of these double doors. They're there to receive you and pray with you, and we ask that you would go to them now as together we stand and sing.